Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, and uh, welcome to the Leeward campus of Christ Community. Uh, I'm Tom, and uh, we are so glad you are here. Um, just grateful, as Pastor Andrew said, that you would join us, and especially if you are visiting, we want to give you a warm welcome and like to greet you after the service. So thank you for being here. Well, Simon Sinek burst on the national scene, uh, as many people do today, through a TEDx talk. The TEDx talk was an amazing moment in TEDx history. It was entitled simply, Start With Why. And of course, as a good TEDx talk, what comes next? A best-selling book. And I commend it to you, Start With Why is an outstanding book, and Simon Sinek begins with these words. By why, I mean, what is your purpose, your cause or belief? Why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning? And why should anyone care? Now, whether we are talking about our individual lives or a relationship we may be in, or a job we have or an organization we serve, the big why question is the most important question any of us can ask. But it is also, I suggest to you, the question that is not only the hardest to answer, but once it's answered, it tends to get fuzzy over time. And when it gets fuzzy, you can bet on any level important things of life get out of focus. Things like the church. So why the church seems like an important question. And wherever you are in your journey of faith or whatever your past experience with a church, this question is something all of us wrestle with. The church does have a mixed history. I mean, let's be transparent. It has done a massive amount of goodness in the world. And yes, sometimes it's done, let's just say, not so good things. The church has experienced the highest place of success in culture. 
and it has experienced great marginalization and failure. And let's be honest, the church, that's each one of us, is made up of less than perfect people. So why does the church exist? It's an important question. And first, I think we need to answer it to say the church is not a human idea. The church is Jesus' idea. And Jesus said, as the gospel writer Matthew records in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Great words. But what did Jesus have in mind? And what do these words mean for us today? If you brought a Bible, I would love for you to turn to me, or turn with me, to the fifth book in the New Testament, the book of Acts. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Well, this morning, as Pastor Andrew said, we are beginning a new series that our teaching team is really excited about. We are going to probe the book of Acts in an extended exploration, and we have entitled our message series, Sent. For we are going to see throughout this invigorating exploration in the book, the church is not only a place we gather on Sunday, but it is a people sent on Monday. In launching his global enterprise, Jesus' hope for a badly broken and sinful world must be seen through the lens of the local church. Apprentices of Jesus, who like you and me, would be Jesus' hands and feet and heart on mission with him each and every day. And when you stop to think about it, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whether you are a believer or a skeptic or you're coming back to church or you wonder about its truth, you have to say that the church is pretty amazing. For more than 2,000 years, the church has not only existed, it is thriving and flourishing around the globe like nothing else, nothing before, 2,000 years later. So that should at least grab your attention that this church thing is unique, and it seems to be very important. But there is an ever-present danger in every time, every generation, every culture, that the church succumbs to a peril of the fuzzy why, the mission drift of the church. So it is not incidental or accidental that Luke, when he pens this book of Acts, gives us in the early verses of the book three truths that help us keep the mission clear. Three truths that combat the fuzzy why. Because the greatest danger to the church is to have a fuzzy why. These three truths flow out of the text and they frame the message this morning. What we are going to see in Luke's writings in the very early verses of Acts, he frames the entire book as a good writer. And the three truths are, we are sent by Jesus, we are empowered by the Spirit, and we are stewards of a big mission. So you're ready to enter into this exploratory terrain in these weeks ahead through this marvelous book of Acts. The first truth is we are sent by Jesus. Now look at me at verse 1. Luke writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Now, we need to understand right away, as thoughtful listeners and 
as we engage in this marvelous first century book, that Luke tells us right away, so we do not miss it, that the book of Acts and his gospel Luke, which he both wrote, are intricately connected. So we need to go back to Luke 1 to make the connection. Luke 1, verse 2. Luke writes, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, notice, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. One of the great questions of the New Testament is, who is this Theophilus guy? I wish I could tell you. But we do have a pretty good hunch that he was a wealthy patron who had come to follow Jesus, who felt it was important, thank God, (laughs) to write a history not only of Jesus but the church. Theophilus, most likely, with great confidence, had commissioned Luke as a premier historian to write an exact history that could be completely trusted for those who want to follow Jesus. But I have sort of a demented imagination, as you might know. I have a question. You ready? What if Luke had stopped his history with just the gospel of Luke? You ever thought about that? What would have happened if the book of Acts had never been written? What if our Bibles just had Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Romans and skipped to some of Paul's letters? So what? Would that have been a big deal? It would have been a massive deal. Because we would have very large plausibility gaps in our faith. Think of it this way. You all Star Wars fans? I hope you are. It's one of the most amazing things in the world. It would be like this. Stay with me. Maybe some of you are really listening now. It would be like this. Not having the Empire Strikes Back, which would have been a catastrophe. Right? We would be stretching our heads asking, why is Han Solo in carbonite? Right? Some of you really know what I'm talking about. What happened to Luke's hand, for example? That would have been a killer in the story. Who in the galaxy far away is Yoda, the knowledgeable one? Yoda. See, in the same way that Empire Strikes Back forms this important bridge in the story between a new hope and the return of the Jedi, this is what Acts does. The best metaphor for the book of Acts in the storyline of Scripture is a bridge. It is a coherent bridge that connects the Old Testament with the New Testament. It connects human history with biblical history. Can you imagine if we didn't have the book of Acts? Without the book of Acts, we would have have known, yes, we'd have known Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension, at least in glimpses. But what would that have meant for human history today? We would not have known about the birth of the church, nor would we know the implications for us as a faith community in the 21st century. The importance of of the book of Acts in the biblical canon cannot be overstated. Now let's press a moment before we dive further into the text to give a little backdrop. This is very important. The book of Acts was written, and we have great confidence in this, by a first century physician. 
which is interesting as you think about it, named Luke, who became a traveling companion. We will see in the story when the pronouns change later on. He became a traveling companion to the Apostle Paul. Dr. Luke has the finest Greek in the New Testament. He's one of the most educated, brilliant people of the first century. And what he does is he connects the gospel writers from Matthew 16, where Jesus says he's going to build his church, to Matthew 28, where Jesus commissions his disciples to make disciples of every nation, and to John 13 through 17 in that upper room discourse where Jesus says he's leaving and he's going to prepare a place for us, but he's going to send the helper. So Luke, bridging Acts, connects the gospel writers and connects the dots. And the dots paint a picture of the church. Acts, then, is an essential literary bridge from Jesus and his first century disciples to his church today in the 21st century. In a sense, the final chapter of Acts, right? There's 28 chapters here we're going to explore. But the final chapter is yet to be written. Have you ever thought of that? Because the final chapter of the church is not yet written. And in an amazing way, unlike perhaps any New Testament book apart from Revelation, we are a continuation of the book of Acts. Does that sound exciting? It does to me. As we explore Acts, we need to keep some things in mind. Let's keep in mind the integrity of the literature of Acts. It's literary integrity. Because it is often abused, and there's all kinds of toxic things around this book. The literary genre is primarily, except for a few sermons, an historical narrative. When we interpret Scripture, we only not only interpret what it says, but why it says it and how it says it. Acts is primarily a description of events that occurred. It is not primarily a prescription of events that must occur. Yes, there are some unique genres within it, but Acts is not primarily a doctrinal treatise, but an illustrative one or illustrative one. Acts presents not a rigid template of how we do church today, but more patterns and principles that inform how we ought to do church today. Let me give you one example. You're going to see this in chapter 1. The early church does something amazing. If we did it at Christ's community, you go, what? They throw dice, literally dice, to decide who's going to be the next apostle. How would you like that at a congregational meeting? Who's going to be leaders? Pastor, let's flip a coin, right? I mean, it's a little funny. It's not bad. But I'm saying, is that a template, a prescription? No, it's a description. The point of Acts is that we are sent on a global mission, and he calls us to that same mission sent to all peoples everywhere. Now, you'll notice in this chapter, right away, the word witness emerges. Luke brilliantly sprinkles this word. We get the word martyr from it. He sprinkles it all the way through the Gospels, like sequencing. There's like 12 times in noun form and then a bunch of other adverbial forms. But he sprinkles it all through the Gospel in proportion for a reason. Because witness is a really important word. You will notice the eyewitness language of Jesus' bodily resurrection. That we are sent as witnesses of Jesus and by Jesus 
is at the very heart of the opening verses, and it is foundational to the rest of Luke's narrative. So this word witness, just keep that in mind in our exploration. Now notice in verses 1 through 4, Luke's implication here that the church as a witness of Christ conveys not mere human opinion, but true and transforming knowledge of Christ to others. As he did so often, the late Dallas Willard, the former professor at USC and a dear friend of Christ's community, writes about this from a philosophical angle of the importance of knowledge. It is so brilliant, I want you to follow along with what he's saying, because he understands what Luke is saying about what it means to be a witness. He says, we should note that witnesses are, first of all, those who know something. <laughs> they just don't just believe something. If you get on the witness stand to tell people what you believe or feel strongly about it, it'll be of no use. That an individual believes something or has been told something is of little interest or importance. By contrast, the witness knows something and makes that knowledge available to others. Dr. Luke and Dr. Willard are connecting here. This word witness means that we have real knowledge. We don't traffic in hunches and opinions but our knowledge is as trustworthy as mathematical knowledge that one plus one equals two. That's Luke's assertion with the word witness. And that's very important in our time. Dallas also goes on to say that the fact that we have real knowledge implicates us in responsibility to share that knowledge, as all knowledge does. And he writes these words, if you have knowledge, out of any matter of great importance to human beings, it is your duty to make that knowledge available to others. If you know the house is on fire, you must share your knowledge with others. Now, some of you are going to love this. If you know where the bargains are, you tell your friends. If you know how to stop global warming or cure cancer, you have a duty to share that knowledge. Now, I want you to understand that as we enter into this book of Acts, the theme of being a witness not only tells us that we communicate real truth and knowledge, but we have a responsibility because the world around us desperately needs that knowledge. What is this knowledge? You will notice that Luke summarizes it in verse 3 in a very pregnant phrase. It is the kingdom of God. Now, that is a whole series that is a big idea that Jesus proclaims over and over in the Gospels, but Luke is connecting his Gospel with the Acts. With Acts. It is a thematic bridge. Simply, let me just say that the kingdom of God is the reign of God. It is the reign of God in the world to a world as it ought to be. It is benevolently ruled and sustained by Jesus as sovereign creator and redeemer. So from Luke's perspective, if you put your sandals on and enter into the first century, the arrival of King Jesus to the world, the long-awaited good news of this redemptive reign of God foretold in the Old Testament is now breaking through in the first century. It is breaking through through the sinless life, atoning death, bodily resurrection of King Jesus. What Luke is saying is a new chapter in redemptive history is emerging, a brand new chapter. And if you'll notice the text carefully, you will hear the words of Jesus in the upper room discourse, the words he told them. It's explicitly in the text. 
What were the words told to them? They hover, hover over this text. Jesus told his disciples the night before he was crucified that a new day was emerging. The Holy Spirit would be coming to them, and it frames the backdrop of verses 6 through 11. And this is where the second truth emerges. We are not only sent by Jesus, we are empowered by the Spirit. Notice verses 6 through 8. Let me read them because they are so vital to the book. So when they had come together, and they're vital together, by the way. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know time or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, there's that word, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Between the time Jesus bodily raised from the dead and appeared to the disciples over 40 days, in the time that Jesus left them to go to the Father, the disciples have one burning question. The burning question of the Jewish disciples who were immersed in Old Testament thinking, who knew that human history was marching by a sovereign God in time who was outside of time to a grand climax. The prophets called it the day of the Lord. It's woven into the fabric of their lives in the Old Testament. A day when God would bring judgment and restoration, both. And they are like, and Luke paints it beautifully in verse 6. You can feel it. They're like, it's like a goosebump expectancy. Be like you buying a lottery ticket and seeing the numbers go bing, 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 bing. You look at your, your ticket, bing, bing, bing. Wow. And they're like, all these events are all coming clear. Jesus taught them that. And it's like, this is it. It's mega lottery time. This is a picture. And they want to know, has this big day arrived? They are pinching themselves. But notice in verse 7, Jesus says, ah, it's not for you to know the time, but it is for you to know something you never should forget. It is a new day. A new chapter is unfolding. And it will be characterized by the supernatural empowerment and the outpouring of the helper, the Holy Spirit. What Jesus says in verse 8, friends, is that this massive empowerment would be aimed toward accomplishing the massive mission foretold in the Old Testament, centered in the Messiah, and the massive mission before them to the ends of the earth. This is what God told Abraham. You see how Luke connects it? with coherence. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit will empower them to be witnesses. Notice that in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and notice to the ends of the earth. For a glorious mission of this global magnitude to be witnesses sent to all people everywhere required supernatural empowerment. So it is not incidental. In fact, it's central that Luke will frame his entire 28 chapters on this verse. Chapter 1, verse 8. Isn't that amazing? And the gospel witness will go forth with supernatural empowerment like never seen before. Where the Holy Spirit will come in an extraordinary way from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond. Now notice also here, 
And this is important for the whole book. So I got to frame some of this. Notice here in the first verses of Acts how intentional Luke is to explicitly highlight all three members of the Trinity. Do you see it? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In verse 1, we see the explicit name of Jesus. In verses 7, the Father. And in verses 2, 5, and 8, the Holy Spirit. Luke wants us to grasp that the church and its global mission is immersed in the full reality of the Trinitarian God, who is active in the world, yet it is the person and work of the Holy Spirit that receives the most visible, compelling role in the Acts narrative. We must not miss this. The supernatural birth and sustenance of the church, now for over 2,000 years, speaks to the Trinitarian God we love and serve. In many ways, Acts is a continuation of Jesus' works. Notice, he begins, all that Jesus began to do and teach, Jesus is doing it now. But Luke's literary spotlight shines brilliantly on the essential role of the Holy Spirit to bring supernatural transformation in individual lives, in local church communities, and our broken world. Because we as image bearers were never designed to live within the puny limitations of our own human resources. It should not be surprising to us that throughout the book of Acts, Dr. Luke will continually point to the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, transforming lives radically, invading structures and changing societies. It makes sense. The book of Acts, as well as 2,000 years of history, of the church can never be explained apart from the supernatural intervention of God and the abiding presence, guidance, and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Neither can a transform individual life, your life or my life, that has been transformed by the power of the gospel. Nor can the miraculous birth the supernatural sustaining and the growing impact of Christ's community, which I've had the glorious privilege of being a part from the beginning. This congregation, now in five campuses, for almost 30 years, is a living miracle from beginning to end. It is a living miracle empowered by the spirit of a faithful presence and an institutional signpost to the glory of our triune God. Our five campuses are arm-in-arm, shoulder-to-shoulder, together on mission. We are not about personalities, about celebrities, about success. We are about a mission, and that is to be a caring family from our very beginning of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. Luke wants us to know that by its very nature, the church is a supernatural enterprise. It cannot function, it cannot be explained, it cannot do its mission without the Holy Spirit's empowerment and saturation in our lives. We are called and sent by Jesus to be a witness to all peoples everywhere. This week, I received the coolest handwritten note. I don't get very many handwritten notes. I don't write anymore like this. But it's a member of our downtown campus, his name is Charlie, and Recently, Charlie uh, had a health emergency during one of the services downtown, and the service stopped, and they all cared for him, and he was taken by ambulance. He's okay now, but he wrote this note. And there's much more, but let me highlight. It says, what I saw that day gives me all the hope I need to say that if lost, broken, and hurting 
in this city would just walk in these doors, this entire city would find the face of God. Reading his note brought me to tears. It reminded me again that the local church, as God designed it and empowers it, is truly the hope of the world. There's nothing like it. Nothing can substitute. It is plan A. And what a brilliant plan it is for the glory of God. What in your life cannot be explained apart from the supernatural intervention of a holy God? What about our faith community? What is a congregation cannot in our past or present be explained in mere human terms? Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone. That is more profound than we even imagine. It's not just about food. Jesus is saying that none of us can function and survive without the intervention of God in our life. We are created, sustained, cared for, loved supernaturally every moment. We were never created to live on our own resources. So it shouldn't surprise us that Luke just explodes in this God-bathed world that we live in. We will notice the Holy Spirit's work in the book and it will compel us to ask the question in our own life. As apprentices of Jesus, we are sent by Jesus. We are empowered by the Spirit, but notice the third truth. We are stewards of a big mission, a big mission. Verses 8 frames the empowerment and global scope of the church's mission, but notice verses 9 through 11. It brings home our responsibility and accountability to that mission. Look at verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let me paraphrase this. They say, basically, why the, whatever, are you looking up? Get to work. Get to work. That's what they say. And if there's one doctrine of the church that often gets overlooked, it is the ascension of Jesus. Yet Paul writes to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16 as an essential doctrine in the earliest creed we have in the New Testament. Let me read that for you. Great indeed, Paul says, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested, Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, notice here's the ascension, taken up in glory. As a gospel community, we may grasp the importance of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but for many of us, the ascension of Jesus is a mere historical curiosity, if not a mythical fancy. But is it? Now, Lucas made a covenantal commitment in the first century to Theophilus that every detail he writes is absolutely 100% accurate. Don't miss this. And without winking or blinking, Luke pens the historical reality of this engine. As a kid, I remember reading it, <laughs> you know, with these guys in white robes or people, I guess, some messengers, I don't know what they were, and Jesus going in a cloud just sent me into sort of UFO territory. Extraterrestrial. Discovery Channel, ancient aliens. 
But it's much more than that. It's not only historically accurate. <laughs> it is put here for good reason. There are several. Let me highlight a couple. Why the ascension matters so much to Luke here. First thing is it gives comfort to his disciples. Remember, they're freaking out in the upper room. <laughs> You're going away out. So I'm coming back. But it's not just that. It not only brings comfort to them, it reminds them of their accountability to Jesus. Let's not forget that Jesus had already told them a parable about a king leaving, right? And coming back and demanding account for his servants of their faithfulness and fruitfulness, by the way. And Jesus is saying, I'm that king. I'm going away. I'm coming back. And yeah, I'm going to give you high fives, hugs. My paraphrase. But I'm going to ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? I have given you a massive mission. Have you been faithful with it? But there's another reason for Luke highlighting the ascension. That's to encourage the disciples that while Jesus is absent bodily on earth, he is present in the heavenly realm. He is reigning in power and glory in the disciples and the church that they would foster around the globe serve not only a risen Savior, but a reigning king. No wonder they had such amazing confidence, filled with the Spirit, to take the gospel to the world, giving up their lives. Because they knew they served a risen and reigning king, and Jesus is now reigning in eternity with the Father. No wonder they had confidence to accomplish their mission. We not only have a risen king, we have a reigning king who is not just reigning yet future, but now. That fires me up to be on mission with him. As his church, we are sent by Jesus as its witnesses to people, all people, everywhere. The church is not only a place people meet on Sunday. It is a transformed people that are sent on mission every Monday and every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So what does it mean for you and me? Wow, what a journey we're going to be on in this series. But let me just begin this conversation with two questions of reflection. Would you write these down? First, where is Jesus sending you? Acts chapter 2, or Acts 1, verse 2. Luke mentions the word apostle. The Greek idea there is sent one. And in this context, it is specifically a handful of people who saw the resurrected Jesus firsthand. But we are all apostles in a different way. Having not seen the resurrected Jesus, we've encountered him in our life, have we not? And we are too sent. So in many ways, we are like the original apostles. We are sent as witnesses of Jesus. His invasion in history, but also his transformation in our life. So where is Jesus sending you tomorrow? Where is Jesus sending you this week? See, the big wide mission of the church is not primarily about doing church on Sunday but being the church on Monday. Sunday morning is about us getting ready for Monday. Sunday morning is not a destination point. It is the departure point. We gather here on Sunday, and that matters, and we want you to come, and it's really important. But we gather so we can be sent out into the world, uniquely, specifically in your world. It is from here we bear witness in our neighborhoods, places of work, our classrooms, our homes, 
William Temple, an amazing Christian in church history, is a British bishop. The Church of England said it better than anybody I know. He said, the Christian church is one organization, the one organization in the world that exists purely for the benefit of non-members. Yeah. See, we are, as pastors, we are here for you. But we're also here for those who will come. For our community, our needy city, and our desperately needed world. If you have not yet embraced Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that is the most important decision you can ever make. So where are you in that? Will you in repentance, faith, trust, do that in the quietness of your heart this morning? That is the first thing Dr. Luke would want you to do. Jesus invites you into an intimate relationship with himself. It is out of this intimacy with Jesus you are sent on mission with him. And if you've embraced the gospel, if you've become an apprentice of Jesus, you are not only called to a local church community, you are sent on mission every day wherever God has placed you in his sovereign calling. How are you growing in intimacy with Jesus? All mission flows out of relationship with him. All leadership flows out of an overflow of your intimacy with Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Where is Jesus sending you this week? What's he calling you to do? Who are the people called to be hands, feet, heart of Jesus? I'm looking at him. As a church, we are sent by Jesus as witnesses to all people everywhere. The second question is, what kind of witnesses are you? It's not a matter if you're a witness. We all witness to others what our life's about, what we love, what we cherish. It's what kind of witness are we? Paul describes our witness as an ambassador. An ambassador goes to another country, represents his own country or her own country, and exemplifies a certain kind of life and mission and language and message. What kind of witness are you going to be this week? What kind of witness in your home with your family first? How about in your marriage, if you're married, or with a roommate? How about the pickup line in school this week, with your classmates, your teachers, your volunteer work in the community, in a conversation with a neighbor? in your social media post? What kind of witness are you in your job? What kind of boss are you? What kind of employee are you? What kind of work do you do? Is it outstanding before your audience of one? Does your life at home, at school, in your neighborhood, does it compel others to see that Jesus is the one their hearts truly long to know. That Jesus is the one who truly offers the good life they long for. What about your witness with your words? Are they seasoned with grace and truth? Will you lovingly yet boldly share with others the good news of the gospel with someone this week? The good news that has transformed your life? 
The good news is that Jesus is the answer, the way, the truth, and the life. And as we'll see in Acts 4.12, the name upon which every knee will not only bow, but the name which means everyone must be saved through him. Do we grasp at heart level that each of us here and those we love walks on a thin tightrope of time across the vastness of eternity? And that human destiny pivots on Jesus. So why the church? Friends, our answer dare not be fuzzy. As his church, we are sent by Jesus on a disciple-making mission to be his witnesses to all people everywhere. Let's bow for prayer. With your heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, let me ask you just a couple questions as we launch into this series in Acts. Have you embraced Jesus? Have you placed your trust in him? Do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And if you do, are you following him as his apprentice? Have you embraced Jesus' mission? And are you orienting your life, your time, your talent, and your treasures around this mission? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, keep us individually and collectively from a fuzzy why. May we embrace your mission Holy Spirit, do a new work in our lives for your glory. Amen.